How's working from home been going for you? Well, Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, a Saturday podcast, uh, which is unusual for us. Uh, Wanted you guys to have more time to listen to what was a longer podcast on Thursday with Tommy. Uh, I know it entertained many of you, and many of you it did not. I'm sorry about that. Um, But I do like when Tommy and I uh, have not necessarily a plan for the show, um, and then it goes much longer than we thought it would. Uh, I can't tell you how many days I did a show with him on radio where we were like, what are we doing today? And we would just say, we'll figure it out when it starts. And then other days were completely structured um, segment by segment, if not, you know, within each segment. Um, but uh, I do love doing the show with Tommy, and I hope, for those of you that enjoy it, uh, I'm glad you do. Uh, joining me today on the show here momentarily will be Sam Monson. Sam works for Pro Football Focus. He's their lead analyst. Um, he is uh, got an interesting background, and he's going to tell us about Dwayne Haskins. He's going to tell us what Pro Football Focus thinks of Dwayne Haskins. He's going to get into the very interesting dilemma that guys at Pro Football Focus focus think that the Redskins faced at number two in this draft with respect to Chase Young or uh, Tua Tungavailoa uh, as uh, as an example. We're going to get into a top 101 list from the 2010s, which Pro Football Focus recently put out. I think you'll be surprised um, where Trent Williams landed in terms of how many tackles were in front of him on this list. Uh, We'll also go through the quarterback list for the 2010s because I found that to be uh, interesting as well. Um, Wanted to start, there was, you know, there was some news uh, last night. Patrick Ewing testing positive for COVID-19. We obviously wish Patrick the best. It's been a tough time for Georgetown basketball. Obviously, this is a life issue, not a a sports issue. Um, But he did say um, yesterday, late yesterday, I want to share that I've tested positive for COVID-19. His statement went on to say this virus is serious and should not be taken lightly. I want you to encourage everyone to stay safe and take care of yourselves and your loved ones. Now more than ever, I want to thank the healthcare workers and everyone on the front lines. I'll be fine and we will all get through this. Um, That was Patrick Ewing. Um, Hopefully uh, it will turn out well for him. Patrick has got to be, well, I think Patrick's like 56, 57 years old. I think I think that's he might be a little bit older than that now. Um, he's not in that uh, he's not in that you know over seventy five uh, category. Is Patrick sixty yet? Actually, I could be wrong on that. Uh, he's fifty seven years old. I had that right. Um, he's going to be fifty eight in August. So we wish Patrick um, the best. Um, you know, there's some really interesting news with respect to sports is a sports return. You know, first of all, the 
NHL um, seems to be getting the closest to a return. You know, the Players Association and the owners seem to be much more on the same page. Greg Wyshynski from ESPN has been doing some very good reporting on this. Um, Last night, the executive board of the National Hockey League Players Association uh, approved a 24-team return, a 24-team playoff format for a return um, to the game. So the regular season would be done. They would go straight to a 24-team playoff format, 12 teams per conference. It would be the top 12 records when the season suspended. So the teams that were on the edge that were going to need to fight to get into playoff position are actually going to be in the postseason. They will give the first four teams in each conference a first-round bye, um, and then the seeds 5 through 12 will play a first-round best-of-five and then advance to what would be the final eight in each conference and the normal playoff format. I like that. Apparently the players will vote on this. And based on what you read, um, we're getting close to more likely than not um, an approval of a format to move forward with. Uh, And then obviously it'll come down to whether or not, you know, from a medical standpoint and a safety standpoint, they're ready to do it. Um, Just as an aside, the Caps had the third best record in the East when the season was suspended. So they would be the three seed and would have a first round bye and would face the winner of the 6-11 matchup, which would be Carolina and the Rangers. So that would happen uh, there in the first round. Um, another, uh, the, the, on the opposite end of the NHL, which appears to be nearing a planned return, would be the Major League Baseball ML, um, you know, Major League Baseball Players Association issue. There is definitely big issues here that look like they're going to be very difficult to solve. First of all, um, Major League Baseball and the Players Association are, aren't even in agreement on uh, what you know how this would work from a logistical standpoint. Like there is, let's agree on what the game will look like and the safety precaution we are going to take. Um, the uh, Major League Baseball, uh, the Players Association, uh, basically had a, a big response to a 67-page proposed set of protocols that were put forth to them for a return to baseball. Um, management uh, had presented uh, these 67 pages to the union and the 30 teams um, a few weeks ago. Um, And yesterday, the union got back to Major League Baseball and said, you know, there are still issues like they considered many of the issues that the that, that baseball's put forth to be over the top, such as arriving in uniform at ballparks, a prohibition on players leaving without team permission, and a ban on guests other than immediate family members. Players also objected to a ban on the use of showers and hydrotherapy. Um, the union wants more frequent testing than management's proposed, um, which is multiple times a week they want. So the players and the owners seem to be far apart on just the logistics of how it would work if they agree on the economics. And the economics are going to be the big issue um, with a return to baseball. There, there are a couple of, of big uh, problems here, and, and that is this, that Major League Baseball and the players – 
um, when this pandemic uh, started, essentially agreed to a pro rata portion of the salaries being paid out by the owners to players. So whenever the number of games was determined um, would be played to finish out the season, they would be paid on a pro rata basis. So they wouldn't be paid for the games they didn't play in, but they would be paid for the rest of them. The problem with that is, according to the owners, is that was based on the assumption of having fans available to attend the games. Um, and now that it would be more likely than not no fans in attendance, well, the owners are looking at a major, you know, 35 to 40% cut in their revenue overall, but more than they had projected when they came to this agreement with the players in March. The players don't care. They feel like they have an agreement. The owners say, well, conditions have changed. Um, John Heyman um, put out, uh, a tweet, John Heyman, who's uh, a big-time insider at MLB ne- Network, uh, put out a tweet um, yes, to, a couple days ago, and he said basically he summed it up as follows. Major League Baseball in recent talks gave the union two options. One, you either negotiate a new financial arrangement, something other than the prorated pay um, for, for the players that we negotiated in March because there aren't going to be fans in attendance, or... We're going to wait until the coronavirus is completely clear to the point where fans can attend games. This Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball Players Association is going to turn into an impasse, it would appear. And I believe the players will get blamed for this. I do. Um, I think ultimately... Um, it's easy for players to say the owners are billionaires, they can afford this, and oh, by the way, if the owners do really well in a season, they don't get an, an additional bump in salary. So now that we've taken a hit in revenue, they shouldn't be asked to take much more. They also have the whole concern over what's perceived to be rev share. Um, but I don't know why they would be concerned about it. Why isn't it just perceived or, or why isn't it just taken as a, uh, a, con- a you know, an emergency plan to play the 2020 season uh, under duress, essentially, uh, essentially. I don't know why they think, you know, taking an inch would mean that the owners would then be looking to take feet and miles after that. Doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, quick word about Roman. All right. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically, a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment's right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you've got questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com and use my promo code SHEEHAN, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com, promo code SHEEHAN, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. 
All right, let's bring in Sam Monson, who is a lead analyst at Pro Football Focus, and they've done some recent things with respect to the quarterback position. Um, they ranked the top 101 players of the 2010s. Um, and I wanted to get Sam's insight um, on the Redskins in particular. But, you know, I um, before before I called you to record this for the podcast, I was looking at your your Twitter uh, account. You're Irish. How did you? Yeah. How long have you been in the states? Moved over here in the summer of 2017, so uh, almost three years now. Um, and yeah, I've been, been with PFF pretty much since the beginning. We were lucky enough to be kind of in on the ground floor, one of the first guys working here, and then so we sort of seen the whole thing. Uh, grow from nothing to where it is to where Chris Collinsworth ends up buying the company, and that's when everybody starts to up sticks and move to Cincinnati. That's pretty wild. So just tell me, before we get into some of the stuff that I was calling you about originally, I'm just interested in this. So you moved to the States in 2017. When did you become a huge fan of of American football, of of the NFL? Um, Years before. uh, I lived in Minnesota for a year when I was a kid. My dad was a surgeon, so we moved around a lot. Um, And I think I kind of always kept some kind of following from it from from back then and then you know you go to college and that's when you can actually watch games crazy times in the morning over in in the uk and ireland um so at that point i think my my sort of interest in it really picked back up again and then was active enough in in the community over there the the football following community to be able to be on neil hornsby's radar when he needed people to help him start grading games at pff so that's how i got in Neil being the founder of, of Pro Football yeah. Focus, um, and you mentioned the Collinsworth purchase, and now I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in this first. So that we'll, we'll, I'll get to the Redskins stuff in a moment, but did you were you a Vikings fan? Did you live in Minneapolis? We lived in Rochester, Minneapolis, or Rochester, Minnesota, rather, yeah. um, so a little bit outside. But, yeah, the Vikings fan for, for all my fault. So are you, are you still a Vikings fan? Yeah, I think so. It's you know when you you become a sort of analyst of all thirty two teams, you, you sort of lose a little bit of the, the fandom, and you you're more just sort of in the the day to day grind of it. But yeah, still a still a soft spot for the Vikings. Still, you know, forlornly hoping that at some point they'll get over the hump. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm going to remind myself right now to circle back to this because I am one of the Redskin fans in D.C. Sam, that is also a huge Kirk Cousins fan. I think they made a big mistake not being aggressive early and getting him signed to a long-term contract. There was a, you know, you remember the situation here. It was really messed up seven ways to Sunday with the way the team handled it. Um, but I'm still a fan of his, um, and I actually want to get your your thoughts on him, uh, and we'll do that a little bit later on. Just real quickly, because I think a lot of NFL fans and a lot of my audience who are Redskin fans, everybody's familiar with, you know, sort of this meteoric rise of pro football focus in this advanced statistical way of of looking at you know not just every player but nearly every play that every player plays in um you mentioned the 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 founder and you said that you were one of the early employees like how early were you there on the ground floor when it launched um well it's yeah kind of i was like the third guy in the door, depending on, you know, how exactly you're measuring it. Um, Neil sets it up. Neil sort of comes up with the idea, sets, gets a website functioning. He hires a guy called Ben Stockwell to do, to help with the grading and to sort of 
flesh out the whole process, Ben very quickly realized that in order to understand how good a guy is from grading terms, you need to know how many times he was on the field because obviously the same grade on 10 snaps versus 50 snaps is completely different. So Ben sort of devised this player participation system. and At that point, they needed people to come in and start doing that. So that's when I came on board. So yeah, one of the, the very first people on board to help do games and for the first sort of couple of years the core team there was sort of like five five guys of which I was you know one of the main one of the, the guys there what is, just out of curiosity what's the business model where are the revenues do they come from teams it's sort of it's split down the middle we've got all 32 NFL teams are customers we've got 70 plus college teams um, CFL teams media uh, entities, you know, the, the big networks, and then we sell to consumers as well. So that's the, the whole other side of the business is our edge and elite products where we sell um, the PFF grades, we sell the advanced statistics, we sell fantasy uh, information and, and green line, the betting, the betting data. So we've got to sort of split 50-50 from the B2B side of things where we sell to teams and, and big networks and then the, the individual customers. Um. When Collinsworth purchased Pro Football Focus, did he purchase a majority stake, or was he an, was he an investor? Yeah, no, he purchased a majority stake, almost uh, the whole shebang. Interesting. Um, you know, one of the things is is I've I did a show with uh, for uh, several years with Chris Cooley, the Redskins' former tight end, and and he's a really good friend, and he comes on this podcast with me all the time as well. And early on, it was interesting because as people would say to us, well, didn't you see what, you know, Jordan Reed's pro football focus grade was from that, that game? And Cooley did this thing, um, Sam, on a weekly basis after games where he graded the players. And he said that the biggest early on, um, he wasn't necessarily a fan, just to be completely um, honest with you, in part because his his feeling was in many cases the evaluation of a player was off at the start because pro football focus didn't understand the responsibility of the player on a given play. For example, you know, he would say, you know, Jordan Reed uh, or, or the, the, the guard was supposed to get to a double team, miss the double team, but handle the first block, whatever it was. But he would say, you know, in many cases, and he understood how the coaches were grading the players, that the grades weren't matching up. I will tell you that a, a year or two later, he thought you guys were much sharper in your evaluation. But what is the hole in the evaluation of a player? Is it that you don't know necessarily what the responsibility of a player on a given play is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing that as we've been doing this, we've been getting more and more NFL feedback and more and more knowledge within the grading um, system. So I, the fact that we improved in his eyes, I think, is a good testament to that. Um, but look, we're, we're in the same boat as everybody else. Anybody from the outside is not going to know what goes on within specific team meeting rooms and the exact uh weird, you know, eccentricities in a specific assignment. Nobody's going to know that, including every other NFL team that's, you know, scouting for their future opponents. If you're like if you're watching the Patriots and you're not in that Patriots meeting room, you don't know their exact assignments either. So it's everybody's working from a either a best guess or a um a, a extrapolating the information they do have based off every other team in the NFL. And you know, that's the other aspect of this is 
most teams are running kind of the same stuff. You know, inside zone, by and large, is inside zone. Outside zone is the same. The rules are, are very similar. You can, you can decipher what everybody is doing. Now, everybody has little bits of quirks and wrinkles to that, and you can be led astray occasionally, but those are pretty small percentages in the overall scheme of things. Um, and I think one of the, the tenets of PSF is, and this is particularly relevant when it comes to, you know, coverage bus on the back end, and you just you don't know who screwed it up, right? Somebody's made a big mistake. There's a receiver running free in the defense, and maybe it's the safety, maybe it's the cornerback. Maybe the whole thing started because the linebacker went in the wrong place and everybody, uh, dominoes started to fall. Right. If we, if we don't know who completely screwed up, if we're not confident who made the mess up, everybody gets a, a zero grade and we don't, we don't try and guess, right? We just put it down as a, a nothing on the play. It doesn't really get graded and we move on to the next one. Rather than try and guess, get it wrong, and swing a guy's grade massively because we were on the wrong side of it. So one of the biggest things we do is, is if, we're, if we're not sure on these plays, we don't guess and we put, every, we put everybody down with the kind of default catch-all grade, and then we'll come back and we'll try and get more information out of, out of NFL teams and we'll try and get um, a better sense of what happened on those plays. So I think as the years have gone on, you know, we've tightened up a lot of the, the blind spots in the system. How do teams use you guys? Like you said that you have contracts with, did you say all 32 teams? Yeah. So give me an example of what, how a team uses your service. Do they use it for their own evaluation or for opponents' evaluations more? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, 32 NFL teams, 32 different levels of competency at, at everything, right? Whether it's football whether it's data, whether it's analytics on the back end, whether it's video guys. So teams use this in completely different ways depending on who it is, and they use this in almost every single way you can think of. The biggest way that every single team uses PFF is we have a system called PFF Ultimate that ties our data into their video system. So Monday for teams used to be coming in and setting QC coaches to work, creating cut-up reels. Yep for the opposition next week, right? That doesn't happen anymore because it's all PFF Ultimate. Those QC coaches can now actually do real work on a Monday instead of spending their day, you know, grinding through tape and working back through the last four weeks to pull up whatever it is coaches want on a week. Everything can be done in like 25 minutes on a Monday morning using PFF system. So we're saving every NFL team like 24 hours of work at the start of the week. I think that's the biggest thing. But we've heard all kinds of stories. You know, teams have used us to self-scout their coaching grades. You know, they've, they've used PFF grades. They've compared them to the, the grades that their coaches were giving internally and saying, whoa, these guys are, these are some very high numbers these, these coaches are giving when the data says that these guys aren't doing that well, when the raw numbers say they're not doing that well. You know, why are they being so generous? Um, but we've also, you know, heard stories of, uh, guys just using the grading to get a, a better understanding of tape study, you know, pull up these guys, pull up uh, the best players out there. We've, used, we've seen teams using it for, um, you know, free agency evaluation for draft prep to get sort of uh, a jump start on, on personnel decisions. Basically, any way you can think of, the data is applicable to them. 
You said that you know every team's got you know different levels of competencies. I think is what you said. So, yeah. who are I mean these are clients, your viewers. So I understand the sensitivity to sort of evaluating their competencies. But can you tell me like who's really super sharp in your opinion and who isn't? Yeah, I, I can't really because like you say, all all, all teams are are, are uh, no that makes sense. Customers. Sure, but they are the teams that you would think. You know, I, there, there aren't really surprises here. The teams that you think of as extremely sharp and extremely on the ball when it comes to data, when it comes to the forefront of analytics and, and decision-making, generally speaking, those teams are the teams, you know, that have smart people in place that do a really good job with the data. And, you know, they come to us with, not with sort of uh, with problems, but with things that they want. You know, it's, hey, this is what we're looking to do. Can you guys do this or can you add this or can you make this happen for us and those are the teams that are really fun to deal with because they they set us on the right direction for you know new improvements and additions and all that kind of stuff i would assume then you know being in this market and being a part of of following the Redskins and being a part of their broadcast, actually for many years as their uh, as their pregame host, that the Redskins, let's just say, are in the bottom third. Would that be fair? Well, they were one of the last teams to come on board, but yeah. they did eventually see the light and uh, and understand the value that we can bring to them. You know, I'm curious in a in a business like Pro Football Focus, um, what the um, what the liquidity strategy is, I would assume that because you've got all of this information and all of these clients, that a public offering wouldn't be necessarily the path that you guys are exploring, or am I wrong? Well, so we always have this tension between how much can we give away to the consumer versus how much do we have to keep behind for the team so that they're getting this value on the back end for a dramatic amount more. And you know, early on, there was definitely a case of some teams not wanting to pay the big corporate price because they could get 80% of what they wanted from the... As a user. Uh, right, from the user end, the, right. the front end stuff. But the big game changer was that PFF Ultimate being able to tie it into their video system. And now, you know, even if you can get 80% of the data that you want on the front end, you can't get that. You know, you can't get the ability to tie it into your video system and that's what saves you 24 hours of work. So it's not just paying us money to do things. It's saving 24 hours of work from every coach you have making these um, cut-ups. It's saving 24 hours of work for everybody that's twiddling their thumbs on a Monday waiting for these cut-ups to come in. Um, so it's saving them a huge amount of money and time and potentially competitive edge to do that. So I think that was the big sort of watershed moment in terms of all right, we don't need to worry anymore about giving away too much on the front end because the back end, the, the capability of what the back end stuff, what the the corporate uh, account gets teams is now so valuable, even with uh, the data getting sim or getting you know merging together. I guess uh, we're talking to Sam Monson, who is um, with Pro Football Focus, the lead analyst, and he was one of the first, you know early employees uh, in the company, and the company's doing very well. Um, it was acquired by Chris Collinsworth a few years ago. We hear you know Collinsworth on Sunday Night Football um, promote it and, and talk about, uh, and NBC's adopted you know, a, a lot of that and uses a lot of your, your rankings in their Sunday Night Broadcast. Um, I had one other question just uh, before, we get to the, uh, before we get to the Redskins. Oh, you know, 
is it fair to say, Sam, that of the prof- of the major sports, the four major sports in in America, f- football, baseball, hockey, and basketball, that baseball's the sport where you can measure the most accurately, and football would be the sport maybe where you could measure the least accurately because of the number of players and the number of things going on on you know in each individual play. Is is that fair or not? It's certainly the most complicated. Um, right. I don't know if it's you know you can it's you can measure so many different things, and it's a case of working out what to do with it all. So you know, football is just it's so incredibly complicated. It's such a fascinating game, and the reason I think all of us love it is because ultimately it's as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. Right? It's it's all the way from it's blocking and tackling, stupid. The end to just this never-ending labyrinth of data and analytics and numbers telling you you should do one thing or you should move the percentages here um, and trying to steal an edge um, at each at each step of the, of the road. And you're never going to get 100% of the way there. You know, you're never going to reach this point where data, set, data leads you to every single decision you make and there's a right answer every step of the way. It's just never going to work that way because it's too complicated. There are too many moving parts. There are too many things that influence every other thing you're looking at. So you're always going to have to use it as a tool. And it's just going to be an area where you're stealing percentages here and there. And You know, a good way of looking at it is when we come to the draft uh, evaluation process. We've only been grading college football since, since 2014. So we've had the sort of last few years have been this learning on the job process of, well, how much does the grading translate to the NFL and then how much does other data and you know what to look at and what to focus on and what to push in terms of our evaluations versus the, the general consensus out there and we've sort of learned as we've gone um, along the way and then every year people will be like well you guys said you know this guy was going to be really good so I'm not going to listen to you you're like well look nobody's like, nobody's ever going to bat a thousand like the best people at drafting in the NFL are like their strike rate is like thirty percent. Yeah, you know, like mid thirties. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Like everybody is terrible. The, the key <laughs> yes. is yeah. moving your percentage. Right. If you can go from thirty to forty, you're the best drafter in NFL history, and you have a massive advantage over somebody. You like broader speaking, you're still batting at forty percent. You're still bad, but that's not that's not what you, the the goal here. The goal is just to get better than everybody else because then you have an advantage. So. I think that's all anybody is striving for with this stuff is just finding little pieces of, of an edge here and there to try and overall um, improve your, your advantage over everybody else. You know, I love what you said about the draft because I, I've sort of been preaching that through the years. I mean, we love the NFL draft. It's a phenomenal television show. But what, you know, it's the thing that we know the least about as sports fans and even the expert analysts. It's the least they know about. It's the least the teams know about. As you said, a good hit rate, a, a good strike rate is probably in the 30 to 35% range in terms of just contributors within three years after the draft and yet we sound so expert you know during that weekend I, I always find that 
um, actually wildly entertaining. Um, you know, uh, we're talking to Sam Monson. He's a lead analyst at the at Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. And by the way, I love your description where you say Irish NFL analyst from the Emerald Isle itself, PFF's lead NFL analyst, prematurely predicting decline. You know, I guess that's better than predicting premature decline, um, which is which would be much worse. But uh, follow Sam on Twitter. All right, I want to ask you about um, Dwayne Haskins to, to, to get into the Redskins stuff. Um, how much can seven starts, is, which is what he had last year, how much can seven starts really tell you about a young rookie quarterback? Yeah, the, the answer is not much, um, sadly. I think everybody wants to think that it does. Well, I, no, that's not true. I think it can tell you a lot, but those the times where it does is, is very rare. You know, like what you, when guys like Russell Wilson come on the scene, it's immediate obvious to everybody right from the get-go that we just had it wrong or that a lot of people had it wrong right that he is not a third round talent he's a better player than that and immediately you understood that he was a better player than that um but most players aren't russell wilson most players land somewhere in the middle and the guys that land in the middle it's a really small sample size to try and parse out and to use to predict things so you know we've seen players have seven game sample sizes even just in the middle of their career that are completely um, anomalous to anything else they've done right and if you were using that to predict forward what they were going to be you would be wildly off base so you know we can look at little bits and pieces and we can try and um, dive deeper than the sort of the overall uh, analysis and try and uh, pick out little bits of signs of encouragement we know which aspects of play are more predictive than others going forward, but it's still such a small sample size that ultimately we're all, you know, we're all just guessing here. We all just need to wait for a bigger, uh, a bigger sample size of data to, to have a better understanding of what he is. Well, certainly his seven starts didn't tell you what Russell Wilson's first seven starts did. I think we can all sort of understand that. But what did you gauge? Um, from the seven starts. And, and I, I would exclude the two relief appearances, especially the first one. I think you understand what the context was here. It was dysfunctional, like it's typically been you know, in the past, but last year in particular. What did his seven starts tell you about him? Yeah, I think the signs were quite encouraging. Um, you know, his, his box score numbers didn't look great, right? Seven touchdowns, seven interceptions. That's not what you're shooting for, particularly when the other rookies out there, Daniel Jones, Kyler Murray, Gardner Minshew, those guys are all 20 touchdowns plus, um, and it's like a two-to-one touchdown to interception ratio. So you look at those and you think, wow, he's way behind these other guys. But if you start diving deeper into you know the actual grading of those plays, Touchdowns and interceptions can lie, right? A touchdown can be a, a bubble screen that a receiver breaks four tackles on and goes distance, or it can be like a great throw deep downfield. It's the same statistic, but one of them is a much better quarterback play than the other. And similarly, interceptions can be like an interception can be a well thrown pass. Like the receiver drops it, it bounces into the hands of a defensive back, and it's picked off. Like that's the receiver's fault. It's not on the quarterback. Um, and also, you know. You can have terrible, terrible passes that end up a defensive back drops it and they're not intercepted or they're even caught. It's sure. a positive play. So those numbers generally can can lie. And they don't always, but sometimes they do. And so PFF's grading sort of takes account of those. And we look at things called 
big-time throws. They're sort of our substitute for touchdowns. They're, they're the highest-graded throws we make. And then turnover-worthy plays. So whether or not it was picked off, we don't care. It's just whether you, were dan- whether you put the ball in a dangerous place right. and it should have been turned over, whether it was or not. So you look at those, and Haskins is still good when it comes to protecting the ball. He didn't put it in harm's way very often. But suddenly his, his big-time throw rate, the sort of the touchdown side of things, that jumps much higher up when you start to focus on those instead of the, the touchdowns. So when you consider he played a lot less than these other guys, his big-time throw rate was actually in the same ballpark as Daniel Jones, as Kyler Murray, as Minshew. So that, I think, is encouraging, is that you know the early on, certainly, he was always good at protecting the ball, but really didn't make enough big plays to, to offset the the fact that he wasn't, you know, the conservative nature of his play. Later on, I think he did. He started to open up a little bit, and you saw flashes that, you know, when he sees it and he trusts what he sees and lets the ball fly, he's got this unquestioned arm talent that is rare. You know, not a lot of quarterbacks have that. So I think at the minimum, you know, we can be encouraged by what we saw from Haskins. Rank the quarterbacks, in your opinion, based on future success, the first-rounders from last year. So Murray, Jones, Haskins. You know, I'll throw in Locke from the second round. Um, give me give me your best guess in terms of future success of the young quarterbacks that were drafted in 2019. I think, honestly, it's still pretty much draft order. Um, I think Kyler Murray is the one you have to be most confident in. I think he probably showed overall the most in his rookie year in a situation in Arizona that wasn't the best in the world. And not only him learning on the job, but a rookie head coach learning on the job. You know, they started that season running this college spread offense, right. 10 personnel, you know, four wide receivers all day. And by like week five, they realized that just wasn't working in the NFL. Like you can't do that, at least not without some pretty significant modifications. So they backed way off that. I think year two for that entire offense is going to look an awful lot better. Plus, you know, the addition of new Compton's, that receiver gives him a viable number one target that he didn't have last year. Then I think the next two are closer. It's it's uh, Daniel Jones and Dwayne Haskins. You know, coming out, we thought Haskins was a better quarterback prospect. I think the hype has gotten a little bit out of control for Daniel Jones, but I will concede that he had a, a better rookie year than I think we we anticipated he might. And, and again, he's at least shown enough that he's now in in the same kind of conversation as Haskins. So I think those two are both in the same kind of area. And then Drew Locke, we, we really haven't seen enough of. You know, he's, he had a couple of games and got people very excited in Denver. But honestly, like, the majority of that excitement was just him not being Joe Flacco. So let's, let's reserve judgment until we see what he can really do in year two. Did the Redskins at number two um, last month uh, make the right choice in drafting Chase Young? Or did you have t- uh, Tua Tungavailoa rated so high that you think they should have considered that? This is a really fascinating area, right? Because this is one of those scenarios where the data will say a, a few different things, and there's no, I don't think there's a clear right answer in this, right? And, and I don't know that you're ever going to get one. So the, the math people, the data science guys in PFF, George Shahuri and Eric Eager, those guys would say quarterback is so important and it moves the needle in terms of wins above replacement so much more than any other position that unless you're certain you have a guy, you keep swinging. So you draft a quarterback, you draft Tua, 
And if you end up in the same position next year and you end up with a quarterback, you take a third one. You just keep going until you find that quarterback. And maybe, you know, maybe Haskins, not Tua, will be the guy that, that comes out of that competition. But the fact that you double your chances of finding the guy is the important aspect. Um, but you then have to look at it and say, well, then there's a confidence level, right? Chase Young is pretty much universally accepted to be, I think, the best player in that draft. Um, an incredible talent, probably the best edge rushing talent we see come out. And we've seen some great ones since CFF has been grading. So you have to say, well, even though his position doesn't move the needle as much as quarterback or even cornerback, you know, you could have gone Jeffrey Akuda or receiver with a C.D. Lamb or a Jerry Judy, even though his position doesn't move the needle as much as those, there is value to the certainty that we all have that he's going to be good. And even though everybody's only batting, you know, 30% in terms of draft evals, certain guys roll around when it's like Quentin Nelson, where just everybody is certain that this guy is going to be a superstar. And, and I think there's some value to that. And we're not far enough along yet in being able to, you know, accurately weigh the two different sides of that, right? How much do you focus on the most valuable position in football versus how much do you focus on the certainty in getting this pick right? I think that, that it's really interesting, the whole keep swinging until you get it right at quarterback. I mean, I, I, there's, there's probably nothing wrong with that mindset. You didn't even add into the complexity with what the Redskins were dealing with at number two, the injury factor and the injury history um, with Tua. You did say something, though, there that, that struck me because I had this conversation with Charlie Casserly and a few other people recently um, Scott McLuhan, I had the conversation with Scott McLuhan recently, and I said, have we gotten to a point in football where corner is just as important as pass rusher or even interior pass rusher is just as important as edge pass rusher? And they all said no, that still if you have the elite game-wrecking edge pass rusher, that that's the second most impactful position in the game behind quarterback. It sounds like you disagree. Yeah, and that, that's one area where I think analytics is pushing a different narrative. The, the analytics would say that cornerback is absolutely more valuable than pass rusher um, in terms of the, the effect it can have on a game. And, you know, the, usually analytics, it all works because of the weight of big numbers. But even on an anecdotal level, you can kind of see this play out, right? You can have an amazing, um, the best pass rusher in the NFL the best pass rusher in the NFL can kind of get neutralized by the best pass protector in the NFL. Generally, when those two meet, the pass blocker wins. The best cornerback in the NFL will shut down the best receivers in the NFL, or at least shut them down to the point where they are not the same players anymore. You know, you think what Darrell Rivas was able to do uh, back at his best, shadow those number one guys, limit their production to a level that just was not the same as when somebody else was covering them, it changes what happens, I think, significantly more than a dominant edge rusher does. The problem is the cornerback is a lot more um, volatile. It's a lot less stable than pass rusher. So if you have like the same level of dominance in a single season, the cornerback is a more valuable thing. But the edge rusher is more like yeah, the edge rusher is more likely to be the same next year. Right. The cornerback is is more likely to swing back down, have a dip, have a bad year, and not be the same guy. And that's the problem, right, is that it's not necessarily which one is more valuable in the vacuum. 
it's which one is going to be more valuable over the length of, say, his rookie contract, or say the 10 years that you're going to have him there, and that's again where it starts to get more complicated and where it becomes a debate again. Really interesting stuff. So a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, what you just said there at the end makes sense anecdotally based on how we watch as fans. Like, cornerbacks tend to be up and down. And my intuitive answer to that would be system. Like, you have to, as a corner, be in the right system. You can be Darrell Revis, but if you're in a primary, if you're primarily in a zone-based coach defensive system, your impact may be less. Um, and then the other thought that I had too, um, with respect to you saying corner, which I don't know if I intuitively or, or believe, um, but but when you got to what was more sustainable, what was more sort of predictably sustainable, an edge rusher more than a corner, that made sense to me. But the reason that I even asked the question of people like Casserly and McLuhan is, you know, just the RPO introduction into the game, how many teams now go to quick throws, West Coast, quick, get it out. I mean, we saw Chase Young neutralized to a certain degree in that semifinal game against a great quarterback where they schemed against him, where they doubled him and tripled him at times, and and Lawrence was getting it out as, you know before he could even get there. I thought he had an impact on the game, and I think people that were, were watching the game understood his impact, even though statistically it didn't bear out. But what do you say about some of that? I know I just gave you a lot there, but cornerback system to start, how important is that? Oh, it's huge. I mean, cornerback, that's why the draft – for cornerbacks is so strange because there are teams that will have a guy on their board that's number one. Like this is our number one corner in this draft, and he'll be like a third rounder for somebody else because he just doesn't fit right. the system. It's, it's there. It's almost completely different positions. Um, so I think scheme is everything for these corners. If you're not taking a guy that fits in your scheme, you might as well set fire to the draft pick. It's just wasting everybody's time. Um, but the, the neutralizing a player is interesting as well because. For that, you don't need to look any farther than look at Aaron Donald and J.J. Watt, right? Those are the two best defenders in the NFL over the last 10 years. And there are plenty of games where both those guys have been completely taken out of the game, right? And it's why each one of them remains underrated despite the fact that they're like defensive players of the year because there's a whole bunch of people that look at them and say, well, he disappeared in this big game here. And you're like, well, did he actually disappear or did he get triple teamed all game and they spend the entire game getting the ball out in like one and a half seconds like those are not the same things exactly um and you know donald donald is the most interesting one because he leads all players in the last decade in terms of pass rush win rate right now interior players are not supposed to do that interior players get less pressure than edge rushers and donald leads all of them he leads von miller like von miller is one of the best pass rushers in nfl history and Donald wins more often by a significant margin over the entire decade. But there are games where teams go out there and they say, look, Aaron Donald is not going to be a factor in this game. So the entire game plan is hinged around taking him away and getting rid of the ball before he gets there. And you can take him out of the game. So no matter how good your pass rusher is, you can remove him as a factor in the game. But if you have a good enough corner, if you have Darrell Rivas, shadowing your number one receiver the whole way, the only way of taking him out of the game is to decide that your number one target is not going to get the ball all day. And almost every NFL team hates that. 
Nobody wants to go into a game and accept that their best offensive weapon is not going to see the ball all game long. So even the best cornerbacks tend to still get the ball thrown their way because of that. But the other, the one more facet of this that, again, makes it even more complicated is you need more cornerbacks than you do pass rushers, right? One elite pass rusher changes the game. But you need cornerback is about your weakest link. Like you need four, you need three corners. You need to go three deep to not have a problem at today's level. So even if you have a Revis, if the other two guys either side of him are terrible, it doesn't matter. Like that was Namdi Asamoah in Oakland years back. Right. He was never thrown at. They he throw he saw the ball like thirty times in a season. But the guys on the other side were so bad that it didn't it didn't matter. It didn't make any difference because they were just giving up. 1,500 yards apiece, and teams are still marching the ball down the field. Yeah, this is really interesting. So just, I mean, cutting to the chase on this part of the conversation, would you have taken Okuda if he was the right fit for the system over Chase Young? I honestly don't know. I think you can make a compelling case either way. And this is what, like, I'm, there are guys in PSF that are sort of staunchly on either side of the fence on this, and I'm kind of sitting on it saying, look, I, I'm, I'm willing to be talked around. I'm the GM that's, that's listening to arguments, and ultimately I'm going to flip a coin and decide one way or the other. I think personally I would probably lean on, Ch- on Chase Young's certainty, right? The fact that he is so much more likely to be really good than Akuda. If Akuda hits you know, the top 25% of his potential – then he's going to be a more valuable player. But I'm more confident that Chase Young hits that percentage. So I think I would lean with the confidence. Uh, all of that is really interesting. You know, the, the other part of this, real quickly, with respect to the dominant pass rusher, and let's just say that Chase Young becomes J.J. Watt, Von Miller off the edge, Khalil Mack off the edge, um, that kind of a player for 10 years. You know, what what is the sort of incremental win probability, uh, you know, what does he mean to to wins above replacement, that position right now? I mean, I know you have it behind a corner that's in the right system and well behind the quarterback, but if Chase Young ends up being an elite pass rusher for the next 10 years, what does it mean to the Redskins? I mean, obviously it helps, um, and it's an incremental win every step of the way, but wins above replacement war is so funny because it's basically all the quarterback. And if you don't have a quarterback, again, backing up what everybody thinks anyway, if you don't have a quarterback, you have no shot. Um, Unless you're able to build a roster or a team that is so good that it essentially equals one quarterback. And that's really, really hard to do. It's not impossible, but those teams don't come along very often. And I think I think it is impossible to sustain that. Were, you know, the, you were build... the 49ers an example of that team last year? Um, I mean, they were. Yeah, they were in the ballpark. But I would go for a little bit further back and say, you look at that, you know, 2015 Denver Broncos right, team with Peyton. where where Peyton Manning yeah. became basically a passenger by the end of it. Like he was bad in that final year, but the team around him was so good that it didn't matter, and they were able to carry him and Brock Osweiler, you know, for half the time as their quarterback because essentially. You know, the combined war of everybody they had playing so well around him equaled one good quarterback. Um, but if you have, you know, if Dwayne Haskins becomes the next Russell Wilson or the next, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Andrew Luck, whatever top 10, top five quarterback you want to think of, on his own, that equates to the, the war of like a, a position upgrade at every other position on the roster. 
Yeah, I I mean, when you mentioned sort of the evaluation of the quarterback and you talked about the ball, bad balls they threw that may not have resulted in a turnover, but that's still a bad ball. Just anecd- just from watching the 49ers a ton last year, it seemed like Garoppolo got away with so many horrendous throws during the course of the season. Am I wrong about that or not? No, you're right. I mean, he, he definitely had a decent amount of, of turnover-worthy plays. Garoppolo's interesting because he's, stylistically, he's on the game manager end of the spectrum. You know, he's a lot like Alex Smith in a lot of ways, except unlike Alex Smith, he makes a lot more of those mistakes. You know, Alex Smith was conservative to a fault where he would always take care of the ball, but he just wouldn't make enough big plays, right? So he was the, like Alex Smith is the prototypical game managing quarterback. Um, but he's also the reason why it became like a pejorative, like a bad thing for your quarterback to be, because he just wouldn't make enough big plays, even though he clearly had the capability of it. Jimmy Garoppolo does a lot of the same things, except unlike Alex Smith, he actually makes more of those mistakes. So he's almost, he's a game manager, but has a little bit more volatility to his game as well. So he's a really interesting quarterback because he's a very unusual one to study sort of stylistically by the way um because a lot of redskin fans here and you know just going through this recent you know documentary um project 11 on alex smith i mean just the realization of how close to death he was and how close he was to losing his leg you know um look it doesn't change the football conversation that we've had here in this town about alex smith and it's been a bit of a polarizing conversation um i agree with you i mean i first of all, I thought he was having a, 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 a good game-managing season before he got hurt, but they were far from a dynamic passing outfit. It really looked like a, a, a bad match between Jay Gruden and what Jay Gruden liked to do and what Alex Smith um, did well. Um, but I'm just curious, as you bring up sort of that game-managing check down, you know, Charlie, you know, quarterback, conservative quarterback, would you – did you evaluate – let's just say Joe Flacco, you know, in a much more positive sense because he was anything but a check down guy and he would throw it into, you know, he would take chances and the ball was stretching the field and the impact that had. And I'm talking about when, you know, he was healthy with an offensive coordinator for more than a year, you know, um, in Baltimore. Like, is that quarterback more valuable than Garoppolo or an Alex Smith? Um, so in a given year, no, but the reason that they become more interesting is because they tend, they're, because they're more volatile, right? So uh, Jameis Winston is a good example, right? If you look at Jameis Winston versus Alex Smith or, or whatever game managing quarterback you want to look at, generally speaking, Jameis Winston makes so many big mistakes and so many turnovers that it doesn't matter that he throws for 5,000 yards and 30 plus touchdowns because he offsets them with the mistakes, right? If you break it down even to just really simple terms, like how many yards does he move the ball per turnover, right, or per big mistake? And even though Jameis Winston is passing for like a 1,000 more yards, he's making enough big mistakes that they end up about the same, right? They pass, they move the ball about the same amount down the field for every time they throw it to the defense. So it doesn't actually do you any good that he throws for more of them. But where it becomes interesting is quarterbacks like Jameis, those highly volatile guys, they have a tendency to every now and again you're going to get a season where they don't make as many big mistakes. And if you take that away, 
suddenly now you have a Pro Bowl, all-pro caliber quarterback in your hands. And if you think back to Cam Newton in 2015, Alex or uh, Carson Palmer in 2015, there have been a few of these quarterbacks where they've had a season where they've just been able to, for whatever reason, cut down on those turnovers, and now you like double the amount. Now you're moving the ball twice as far as a guy like Alex Smith for every mistake you're making, and that is what changes the entire conversation. Because the chance of a game manager ever suddenly, you know, developing an aggressive streak are pretty slim. But even just through blind luck, those volatile quarterbacks can just avoid a bunch of mistakes. And when they do that, now they're way more valuable. It, that that's totally logical to me. The way you just described that, um, and you could see, uh, like Tim, I've been a Jameis Winston fan, and people, you know, my listeners said, "What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "Look, I'm not talking about the 30 interceptions. I'm talking about what if he can ever figure out a way not to make that killer mistake." And I thought he was well coached last year too. You know, I think even their coaching staff recognizes, you know, the potential in somebody like him if he can figure that out, he could become elite overnight. Yeah, and I, I think it always spoke volumes, the fact that Bruce Arians yes. didn't, didn't want any part of it, right? Because Bruce Arians was the guy that got that season out of Carson Palmer. He's done this before. He's been the guy that has gotten that season out of the quarterbacks, where you suddenly you take all the good that was already there and you, you have the number of mistakes they're making. You cut down on the bad plays and suddenly you've got that superstar in your hands. And the fact that Arians, for a quarterback like Jameis, who was throwing for 5,000 yards, who's still only, like, what is he, 26 at yeah. this point, 27? You know, and the fact that Arians still looked at that and said, you know what, no, I, I, I don't want this. I can't do it. I thought that, I think, always spoke volumes. I thought you were going to say, actually, something different there. I, I thought you were going to say that he would perhaps be the guy that fig- figures out with Jameis how to cut down that turnover ratio yeah. in half, uh, but sees the upside. You know what was interesting, just as an aside on Winston, and I've mentioned this before, is the narrative on him personally was never overly positive, but all you heard during this process of bringing Brady in is how well-respected and how highly thought of he was by his teammates and the coaching staff. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens with him moving forward. Look, I wanted to get one of the original reasons I called you was this top 101 list that Pro Football Focus put together and you were a part of. I wanted to start with this. You guys had the the top 101 for the 2010s, all right? The last 10-year decade in pro football. And you ranked the left and you had the left tackles as part of the 101 and you had Trent Williams as the 7th best left tackle, or tackle, excuse me, of the decade. That's a wow for most Redskin fans, Sam, because I think most would say that they thought of Trent Williams as top four to five worst case, if not you know one of the two or three best of the last decade. Why is he behind Joe Thomas, Jason Peters, Andrew Whitworth, Joe Staley, uh, Tyron Smith, and Dwayne Brown? Yeah, well, I think... Um... It's been a really good time for left tackle play. I think that's the first and foremost thing. The other thing is, you know, a lot of these guys have played like the entirety of the decade. (laughs) Like Andrew Whitworth has played some absurd number, like 11,000 snaps in the decade. Um, You know, a lot of these guys have played basically the entire time. And honestly, it was close. Like these are all 
really, really good players. And anybody that makes this top 101 list has been a fantastic player over the last decade. So to a certain extent, you know, we're splitting hairs on this stuff. Um, and ultimately, you know, we lean on the PFF grading. We have quantified and graded every single play from every one of these guys over the decade. Andrew Whitworth, we've graded 12,000 plays of his or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, those guys just edged him slightly in terms of PFF grade. Um, what if, just uh, there's one other player during this last ten years in Washington that I think had a, had the po- potential to be on this list when the decade ended, but like a lot of players, just could never stay healthy enough. What did you guys think of Jordan Reed's potential and in in the two or three years of high level production at that position? Yeah, I mean, at his best, like you say, when he's been healthy, he has had a PFF grade that's right up there with the best receiving tight ends in the NFL. You know, Rob Gronkowski over the decade kind of skews what everybody thinks of a tight end because he just broke the mold. He was the best tight end in the NFL, and he was the most complete tight end in the NFL. He was the best receiving weapon at the position, but he was also probably the best blocking tight end in the decade as well. There are guys that had roster spots for years as blocking specialists, and Gronkowski was better than them at blocking. Um, So he breaks everything. But generally, over the decade, tight ends have been either receivers or they've been blockers. And Jordan Reed, at his best, I think has been as good as any non-Gronkowski receiving tight end in the NFL. We just didn't get to see enough of it. And I think you're right. If he had been um, 100% healthy for, for for his entire career, we would be thinking of him as, you know, one of the one of the best players of of the decade and one of the best tight ends of the, of his era. The quarterbacks for the 2010s were ranked in order: Brady, Breeze, Rogers, Peyton, uh, Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, Roethlisberger, and Rivers. They were the quarterbacks ranked in the top 101. I think if we, as football fans, think of the best quarterbacks of the last 10 years. You know, that's that's the list of quarterbacks that you would definitely have in there. Who was next? Uh, who was next? Next, I think, would have been Andrew Luck, right? If that, that makes sense. And, the, and I, you didn't have Cam in there. No. So PFF, PFF has always been way lower on Cam than everybody else, with the exception of that one 2015 season where he put it all together and became an MVP caliber player. If he'd been that player for his entire career – you know, he would be on this list. He would be, we'd be where everybody else is. And I think people have always kind of used the the upside, the highlight, the the positive plays. You know, the same way that right now everybody skews negative on Jameis Winston. It's like I don't care about the five thousand yards because there's so many interceptions. I think people have always skewed the other way to an extent with Cam Newton. And it's like, wow, look at these throws. You know, look at this laser fifty yards downfield. Look at this throw off balance from the pocket, look at the, you know, dominant physical skills he has running the ball. It's like, yeah, but there's a lot of bad plays in there as well. And what matters is like the the sum of all of that, right? When you put it all together, where do you end up? And I think Cam has always ended up a little bit lower um, using PFF's uh, measurements than, than everybody else thinks he has, other than that one great season. Yeah, it makes sense to me that Luck would have been sort of uh, in, in next in line. Stafford maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, Luck and Stafford I think will probably have been the next two quarterbacks up. So, 
Last question for you, because you've been so generous with your time. It started with you telling me that you lived in the States for a while in Minnesota. So how does PFF evaluate Kirk Cousins? Last season, pretty well. I think last season was a career year for him. Um, Cousins is another one of these players that's really intriguing because he's a, he's an unusual um, skill set. He's an unusual sort of uh, unusual breakup of quarterback. Um, you know, the same way Jimmy Garoppolo is a very unusual quarterback stylistically, I think Cousins is as well um, because he does a lot of things really well and then there's always a little bit missing um and ultimately the vikings are in this interesting position where you know they roll the dice with this contract a couple of times now this sort of fully guaranteed um high-end money and it's not that it's the most onerous contract in the nfl but it's certainly onerous enough that it causes them problems you know and they have to constantly juggle their ability to spend money on other positions. And I think Cousins is maybe the best of the quarterbacks that are in this tier that need, you know, help around them. There's guys like Patrick Mahomes that are transcendent talents, and it almost doesn't matter what you put around them because they can drag anything to the playoffs and do enough in the playoffs to win games, you know, regardless of their supporting cast. Right. Aaron Aaron Rodgers, uh, Russell Wilson, who else is in that category right now today in the league? Right now, it might only, I don't know if Rodgers is still in there, to be honest. It might only be Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes, uh, right, right at this second. And even Mahomes, you know, he's got a great situation right now. So I don't want to, you know, lean too heavily on that. I just think that him, Russell Wilson, those guys, it almost doesn't matter what you put around them. They would be good. Um, but then you have this group of quarterbacks where, you know, if you surround them with enough talent, they can win you games. And Cousins was brought over to Minnesota. Because of games like the, the 2017 NFC Championship game, right? Things went south against the Eagles. They got in a big hole in a hurry. And Case Keenum or Sam Bradford or Teddy Bridgewater, those guys were not the quarterbacks that can bring you back from a big deficit with their, with their throwing. Uh, they're just not that kind of style. Cousins at least can do that. Now, he doesn't do it consistently, and he's not, you know, he's not a Patrick Mahomes, right? You can't give him a 10-point deficit every game and expect him to just keep going. But he at least has that, that skill set. He's got the ability to do that. And the Vikings essentially brought him in with that in mind. But the problem is, in order for that to work, you need to be able to maintain a 2017-caliber roster around him. And the, the amount they're paying him is so much that they're really struggling to do that right now. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting that you wouldn't have Rodgers in that group that you can strap basically the team to his back, a subpar or an average team, and he can get you to the postseason and, and win a game or two. I, I I mean, he obviously was in that group at some point, but you think he's fallen out of that group. Yeah, and I think he can certainly still get you to the postseason and maybe win a game, but I think we've seen that he's not – like he can't take you all the way anymore without some more help. And right. I think the past few seasons – have probably shown that, right, is, is we've been wondering what's wrong with this Green Bay offense or with Aaron Rodgers, and, and Mike McCarthy initially took all the blame, and then last season the new coaching staff comes in, and it's, it's the same story. So now it's, it's, a, it's shifted a little more to, well, maybe it is Rodgers. And, uh, you know, they've, and if the, uh, the only mitigating factor to that would be, well, he's only had Devontae Adams, and he hasn't had this great group of receivers. But that's, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? It's that in the past, 
it might not have mattered if it was only Devontae Adams and a bunch of other guys. Rodgers is so good, he would overcome that. Now, it's at least impacting him to the point where we're saying, well, Rodgers might not be the same guy anymore. Interesting stuff. Um, This has been great. Actually, you know what? I lied. Do you evaluate coaches and coaching staffs? Does PFF do that or not? We do, sort of. Um, So we, we were just talking about this on our podcast, that I really like the way we do it, right? Because it assumes less sort of, knowledge and less um less right and wrong than other places like if you were going to grade coaches most people want you to grade the play call and sort of look at this and say well that was a bad play call let's give that a negative grade or that was a great one let's give that a positive but ultimately there's too many moving pieces you need to know too much to do that and you're it's very difficult to figure out a way you would do that without sort of basically just relying on the result whether it worked or not but that's not necessarily a good play call so what PFF does is say, well, at, at our heart, we were a player evaluation website. So we wanted to know how good each individual player was playing versus, you know, just their box score stats or their, their perception. Um, and we've been, there's always been a little bit of a disconnect between, you know, the sum of those parts and how a unit is actually performing. So, you know, adding up the grades of 11 guys on defense doesn't necessarily give you an accurate reflection of how well that defense is playing because it's about how it all ties together. Sure. And I think the difference between those two, if you look at the, you know, the, the correct ways of measuring sort of efficiency and production uh, of a unit, offense or defense, and then compare that to their PFF grade, the difference between those two is effectively coaching and scheme, right? So if you've got a, guy, a bunch of guys that are grading terribly, but their defense collectively is doing really well, well, that means the scheme and the coaching is doing a really good job because it's making you know, a, a really good job out of a bunch of guys that aren't playing that well. Similarly, if the reverse is true, if you've got a bunch of guys and they're all grading out of their skins, but the defense is still getting destroyed, I mean, that means the coaching and the scheme is terrible. Right. So we do that essentially for both sides of the ball and compare, you know, the, the difference the, the difference between PFF's grades for the unit and how they're actually performing overall. And I think it's really interesting because it does push up guys that are consistently able to beat one side or other of that, you know, of that difference. Right. And you see guys consistently do make a difference, either positively or negatively. What did the Redskins get with Ron Rivera and his staff? I think they've got a guy that will overachieve a little bit, certainly on defense. Um, I think Ron Rivera, like, he's not among the very best coaches in the NFL for that in terms of consistent, proven track record of, of elevating a group. But I think he does... Like he does tend to get more out of the the group than the the sort of sum of their talent or the sum of their grading. So I think for defense in particular, they've gotten a, a good coach. I really appreciate this. This was really um, beyond uh, what my I had anticipated when I called you. Um, it was great, um, Sam. Really appreciate it. For those that want to follow Sam on Twitter at pff underscore sam. Really appreciate it, Sam. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Stay healthy, and hopefully we'll talk soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You too. That was great. <clears throat> I really enjoyed that conversation uh, with Sam Monson. I-, I loved his backstory. Um, I've been skeptical of PFF uh, for many years now. Um, they're obviously getting better um, than, they- than where they were a few years back. Um, but he really had some interesting information and was really good um, in conversation there. I hope you enjoyed it as well. By the way, um, I didn't mention this on Trent Williams, uh, where he landed on the 101-player list. Uh, he was 59th. 
um, and he was the seventh best tackle per pro football focus of the 2010s. Uh, Six tackles in front of him, and I think I mentioned them, but they were Joe Thomas, Jason Peters, Andrew Whitworth, Joe Staley, Tyron Smith, and Dwayne Brown, all rated as better tackles ahead of Trent Williams. But you heard what Sam said, that it was, you know, very close, and Trent Williams ended up um, being the 59th best player of the decade and the seventh best tackle of the decade. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. All right, um, we're done for today. It's doubtful unless there's a major story that we will do a show on Memorial Day. So the next time you'll hear from us will be Tuesday. If there is uh, a podcast, it's because something dramatic happened here over the next uh, remaining uh, days of the weekend. Have a great holiday weekend. Stay healthy, stay safe. Talk to you on Tuesday.